Good day, and welcome to episode 8 of the Coriolis Effect. My ship without me is useless. Without my ship, I am useless. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew, and today is the very first day of Gen Con, and we're there! Yay! <laughs> no, no if only we were. Damn. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're in our individual recording rooms in our various houses uh, on the other side of the Atlantic from Gen Con, but to all of those who, when they listen to this, will have been to Gen Con, we hope you had a really good time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot going on in this episode, but... Uh, yep. I've got some bad news uh, to begin with, I'm afraid. Firstly, we haven't, thanks to summer holidays, we haven't played uh, the Spectral Corsair campaign since the last episode, so we've got no update on that for us this, this week. And I haven't seen Stranger Things yet. I've been trying, but I haven't. <sighs> so don't mention it, Matt, okay? I won't mention Stranger Things. Okay, I won't no. mention Stranger Things at all. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you haven't got long before Stranger Things 2 comes out. Uh, but never mind, let's move on. <laughs> it doesn't mean Stranger Things 1 is taken away, is it? So, uh, you know, it's good. Yeah, yeah, eventually, eventually you'll get on there. I, actually, it makes sense if you're going to do this by binge watching and uh, maybe doing a free trial of Netflix to binge watch both, then you might want to start that free trial just a, a week before uh, Halloween, which I think is when the first episode of Stranger Things 2 comes out. Right, okay. Well, that's fair enough. That means, then, you have to shut up about it until October the 31st. Okay, that's a deal. No more Stranger Things. Hey, 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 I've achieved something today. <laughs> anyway. I will say to all our listeners, watch Stranger Things, and that's the last time <laughs> I'll talk about it. Okay. And um, we're, we're talking about other stuff as well, though. We're, it is the first day of Gen Con. We know that Modifius are at Gen Con and they are selling, among many, many games that they seem to be releasing at the moment, uh, Coriolis. And in fact, they've taken with them a new Coriolis publication. And so we'll be talking about that very shortly. Then we're going to be talking about ship design. We are going to go to a convention and I'm designing a ship for that. So... Um, We'll tell you a bit about that. Then we thought it was worth having a bit of a discussion about the portal space mistake that I made in, uh, in when, when we did our actual play that some of you may well have been listening to. And we'll expand upon that. Dave, you've got a great talent of the episode. We've got no Spectral Corsair, you say. I hope you've got something to fill those five minutes, though. Otherwise, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> well, I've uh, I'm going to foreshadow something that I'm running in a couple of weeks, um, which I'll talk a little bit about later on. Uh, which I think is really interesting and really exciting. I ran a version of this about thirty years ago. Thirty uh, years was... ago, the mind boggles. I know it does, doesn't it? Um, so uh, I'll talk a little bit about that uh, just to foreshadow. Okay. And we'll finish up. up. We've had some nice feedback that we we want to share with everybody before we finish the episode. So. That's that's our plan for the episode, but we'll see how closely we stick to that. It's looking pretty packed as well. I think we've got a lot to talk about here. So uh, uh, hopefully I've advised Matthew not to worry too much about the time. So yeah. no stressing, Matt. No stressing. No, no, I won't stress. I won't stress. Guys, <laughs> settle in for a long one. There won't be any surprises. Uh, Said the actress to the bishop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's get let's get back to uh, Modifius, Coriolis and Gen Con. Uh, yes. Just in time for Gen Con, uh, Free League and Modifius put out The Dying Ship. 
and you can get that now even if you, if you're at Gen Con you can get it in hard copy you can order it from either Swedish or Modifius's outlet and you can get it off uh, off drive through as a PDF and I've already done that Dave have you done that yet no, I haven't done that yet. I've, I've, I've seen it was there. I haven't bought it. I knew that you would and you'd talk all about it. And I didn't want to jump in and read something that you might then want to run for us in right. our campaign, the Mukafar campaign. I will get it, though. But um, tell me all about it. How, yeah, how, well, what, what's it I, like? I think it could be worth you getting. I think it might fit in really nicely with the campaign that you're running for Spectral Corsair. It sounds okay. to me like exactly the sort of job that that crew might take on. Interestingly, actually, having read it through very briefly, I only got it yesterday, I don't think it will feature in my campaign. I don't think it's the sort of job that your crew, Yafet Otto's crew, would take on. In fact, I, I, I see you guys being potentially the bad guys in, in this scenario. <laughs> We're not uh, bad guys. We're just misunderstood. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I, I just, I just feel that your talents would work better in that direction than the one they've got planned at the moment. But maybe after all your adventures in Portal Space, uh, that would change. But no, Dave, I, I, I say, feel free to buy it, to read it, to run it, because uh, I don't think you'll be spoiling anything for yourselves. For everybody else, I think it's a worthy addition to your Coriolis library. <sighs> So I'm slightly niggled by the fact that it has the same crew that we first saw in Dark Flowers, the quick start campaign, which, you know, for some people that makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you've done the quick start and uh, your crew want to carry on with those characters, then they slot very easily into this one. Uh, They'll get to know their characters a bit more. And it's nice to see that crew, if you like, develop over time and have new adventures. But Part of me kind of wishes for my seven pounds. It's uh, about forty pages. I'd like to have seen a new crew in there, just just to see a bit of variety, a bit of creativity from Freel again. But maybe that's a very minor complaint. There's a lovely ship in there. There's a great adventure that I won't spoil for anybody, but um, it does feature the dark between the stars. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't everything I guess these days. But that's I mean that's really interesting. I when I haven't I haven't run dark flowers i've listened to a couple of podcasts running through it so i'm familiar with it uh, and i guess yeah i mean uh, having a new set of crew i mean i i think for me there's something quite nice about having the same crew going through it because it perhaps does give a sense of continuity for that kind of uh, publication that they're putting out but i take your point that it probably wouldn't have been that hard to chuck in a new crew uh, but also then flag up why don't you use the crew from from yes. Dark Flowers, yeah. if you I'd, want to. I'd have liked the option to have the crew from Dark yeah. Flowers do this adventure, but um, it would have been nice. I just, you know, I just want more bang for my buck, and I'm always interested in new characters. Uh, so yeah. that's, it's a very minor complaint, though. <laughs> Everything else is worthwhile. It's got some handouts. So it's the first time I've seen anything that you know we can actually give to players uh, in terms of clues and stuff. So it's nice to see that sort of stuff being produced yeah. and. Uh, yeah, more please uh, from Freel again and Modifius. Talking of Gen Con as well, I think it's worth saying we're halfway through RPG A Day. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, RPG A Day was started about four years ago by the designer of uh, the Doctor Who RPG, who, like us, is a Brit who couldn't afford to go across the channel go across the Atlantic for Gen Con and wanted to think of some way in which he could participate. So throughout the month of August, there is a daily question for 
podcasters, tweeters, uh, bloggers, or any of us, in fact, to to ruminate upon and to broadcast our answer to the wider gaming community. I love it. It brings the community together. Now, we, we both intended to to write answers to this on our on our various blogs, but I know, Dave, you've had issues at, um, in, your, in your personal life, which means that you weren't able to do that. Yeah, well, real real life's kind of got in the way of quite a lot of stuff. Uh, where a very good friend of mine's been been unwell, so but he's doing much better. And shout out to Skis, my old mate from uni. Get well soon, pal. Get well soon. But I have been reading some of the bits and bobs that have come through, and particularly I've enjoyed uh, sort of the nostalgia of reading a couple of your posts, Matt, <laughs> that re- relate to some of our old games, and particularly the the Serenity RPG with Bobby Rashid. Uh, that reminded me all of that old campaign. And and the fate as well, because um, uh, the the fate campaign we've been running, where we've still got probably a final climactic scenario to run. Yeah, it, it's it, it's so good in that the decisions that me, Tony, and Andy have been making as characters in that nineteen eighteen post World War One setting, where we're fighting human eating aliens who can then impersonate people. It's just so full of paranoia. It's so full of fear and distrust, particularly when. Tony's first character turned out to be an alien and I had, we had to kill him in a fight that I thought we were going to lose. But the decisions we've been making for us in the game seem the either the most reasonable or uh, are the decisions that have been forced upon us at the time. Yeah. But looking, looking at it from the outside, we look like mad schizophrenic psychopaths. And it's just, it's brilliant in the way that the game has driven us to make decisions that on the one hand look sensible and reasonable, but on the other look utterly mad now it's, it's been such a fabulous game to run i feel i've been more like an audience than a game master there because <laughs> uh, you guys took it in a direction that you know that isn't radically different from what i thought it might go in but actually it is radically different from what i thought it might go in <laughs> you're vaguely following the plot uh but but as i say making personal decisions that you know to any sane man, I will say to to all you listeners, to any sane person, these are ridiculously insane decisions. And yet, I can understand how they appear to be perfectly rational to the characters in the, in, in the game. And it does. It's, it's turned a game that I thought was going to be about uh, spying and um, potentially might turn into a sort of Dan Dare thing in the long run <laughs> into a game that's really all about post traumatic stress disorder as far as uh, <laughs> the way i see your characters behaving i'm not, and, I'm not sure you're i'm not sure you're selling it there matt you know ro- <laughs> let's go and role play post-traumatic stress disorder yeah get in i'm up for that one yeah well yeah it, it, it's been brilliant actually I, it really has been it has been a great campaign it. and i have got a game about post-traumatic stress disorder coming up very shortly so uh you'll enjoy that no um, <laughs> no i've promised to play coriolis more so that's that's what i'm going to run uh so yeah. so yeah, uh, my my posts are on uh, my blog at fictionsoup.org if any of you are interested in looking at it. And I'm uh, tweeting about them each day on uh, the Coriolis Effect Twitter channel as well. So you can find links there. But I don't want to bore you all with that. I've talked too much about the current gaming news. Have you got any, Dave, that you want to mention? Well, I was going to talk a little bit about the new Star Trek RPG, which uh, I got the PDF a couple of weeks ago. And I, yeah, I just thought, if we've got a couple of minutes, I'll just talk through some of my impressions. I've, I've read it, and I haven't played it yet, but I have rolled up a character. Because I think rolling up a character's... Well, I love doing it anyway, it's just fun. 
but it it does give you a bit of an insight into the the feel of of the game if you don't get a chance to actually play it. Yeah, no, I find it's always a useful way of of drocking how a game works, and uh, I you know I know that. It, it is on sale at Gen Con right now. Uh, Modifius have got stacks and stacks of those books on their stall, and I've seen photos of it. So uh, it's very contemporary. Tell us what you think. I mean, it looks really good. I mean, I love the look and the feel of it. It's very obviously very Star Trek. I'm I'm not an uber Trekkie. I've never gone somewhere dressed up as a Star Trek character, but I do love Star Trek, and I've so it, it's prompted me to watch some of the movies again over the last couple of weeks, which has been really good fun. And the book is packed full of detail, lots of history, lots of snippets from well-known characters. But almost, almost too much, and I'll come to that in a moment. But I, but I think a Star Trek RPG has two intrinsic problems it's got to get around. One is the risk of having really old characters as your player characters, because you you want people of you know who are commanding ships or are bridge crew. And the second is that there is a, there is a bit of a stretching credulity around uh, you know bridge crew doing everything themselves. You know, if you're commanding a ship of five hundred people, why do the same five people go and do everything? So I think. So I think those are two intrinsic problems which are faced by this this particular game. Now in I this thought, version, oh sorry for interrupting, but I I thought from early descriptions of the game that it was going to tackle that issue that that the characters you created might not necessarily be bridge crew, but more likely to be an away team or something like that. Am I am I wrong about that? It it does give you the option to do do that, but it is still very focused on who's the captain, who's the uh, you know who are the head of departments on the ship? So who's who? Who is the bridge crew? Well, even really? though it does so, say that, even though it does say that the bridge crew don't have to be the player characters, mm. or all of them don't have to be player characters. The clear implication I took from reading it was that you would be playing Sulu or Uhura or Spock, effectively. Right. Yeah. And and not the captain because I thought there was a thing I'd read somewhere about effectively the GM is always the captain. I might I might have misread that. Yeah, um, I didn't pick that up. I mean, I will caveat my comments with I've I've skim read this book. It is huge. <laughs> There's a massive amount of detail in it, so I haven't had a chance to read it uh, every single word. I didn't pick that up, but that's I think that's a perfectly reasonable way of doing it. But I think you know, in this version, the age feels much less of an issue. They give the option of having a brand new, inexperienced character or a slightly experienced character with a few years under his belt or or a veteran. So you get that choice. Mm-hmm. And they do stress also that if if you're playing a non-human race, then many of them lived to three hundred years anyway. So if you're fifty and a Vulcan, so what? It doesn't actually matter. But so that's good. I like that. Yeah. But I think also maybe for me anyway, if I was going to GM this, you'd want to start the play, the, the player characters on a smaller ship maybe, mm-hmm. and have them as the bridge crew on a small ship rather than on you know an Enterprise Constitution class. class. Mm. Yeah. The thing that I uh, I always sort of think about in this sense was when I ran the Klingon expansion of the old RP uh, Star Trek RPG, where you were all Klingons mm-hmm. with your character Koblars. Koblars, which I thought, excellent. I mean, character. you weren't really you weren't really taking it very seriously with a name like that. I was. But, um... I was. That, <laughs> you look at the book. I'm sure the dictionary of Klingon has Koblars in it. I, I think it's mostly about Koblars, isn't probably. It? <laughs> um, but that worked really well because you were the crew of a bird of prey and so it was a much smaller setting so that worked really well going back to the to the current version i'm i'm torn there are there are bits of me that are loving this and the character that i rolled up who is a a cross vulcan andorian came <laughs> from well came from a a vulcan who was a renegade who then raped his andoran mother and so he hates the vulcans 
Oh, quirky. Um, so I've got a really good character that I would love to play, but the, the, the game itself has got a couple of things that either I've missed it or I haven't really got it or I don't like very much. So I think the action, the 2D20 system, which, again, caveated, I've never played a game with a 2D20 system before, but reading through it, I mean, it's so complicated. And, mm. you know, I'm an, I'm an experienced player and referee. I couldn't, I've read it through, I couldn't run it now. I'd need, I'd need to read it through again and probably play through it a couple of times to, to get the hang of it. And then you've got attributes and then you've got your, your disciplines and then you have focuses for your character. Then you have traits and advantages and complications and all that helps you with tasks, but you also get momentum and threat that influence that. And then you have values and then you've got determination that helps you do stuff. And then, oh, don't forget talents. So, I mean, there's loads of stuff in there. And I think it's just, just feels really, really quite complicated. I yeah, think no. the, other thing I, the other thing I'm slightly disappointed with is, and again, I might have missed this, but there's, no, there's nothing in it that recreates the Sulu saying to Kirk, phasers locked. Or, or Kirk shouting, put all power to the front shields. So there's no mechanic for locking phasers that I can see. There's no mechanic for that kind of tactical space combat that you just really associate with Star Trek. Mm. And so I haven't played it through, so it might the feel of it might be perfect. But I, I was just reading it and I was going, locking phases, locking phases, where the hell is it? And I couldn't find it anywhere. So I think that... So I'm slightly disappointed, disappointed about that. I've seen... So I, I, I've not played any 2D20 games either, but I had a chance last year to talk to Jason Dole, who was the author of the Modifius's nice. Conan game, which, which uses the same principle. And I, I was actually meant to be joining a, a, a demo game, but nobody else had turned up for it. So we just had a chat <laughs> instead. And he talked me through the rules. And at the time, I was thinking they sound quite complex. And in fact, he said, you know, it feels complex as I'm explaining it, but really it works when you're playing. Um, yeah. But I've also seen uh, Modifius and the guys from Geek and Sundry have put together a uh, an actual play on YouTube. Well, it's not on YouTube for the most part. It's a subscription Twitch channel. Luckily, my boy is a Twitch subscriber, so um, I get to see it on, on his account. <laughs> and, um, and I've been watching it in play and... In there, you know, it's very role play heavy. They're hardly ever getting to roll the dice because they're all good role players. But I do think that when the dice start rolling, it might all slow down. And it's interesting you say, I haven't seen any ship combat there. But, you know, that was a feature of the old FASA game that I thought worked quite well in everybody having a role to do on the ship and yeah. uh, locking phases and, you know, directing shields. So interesting. We'll, we'll have to play it. I, I've got the book on on order i went for the special edition not the borg cube because i'm not that stupid rich um <laughs> uh, uh, but i have gone for the one that's got the lovely enterprise d uh, front cover because i'm an enterprise d captain picard man uh for my right life. okay you're more of a kirk <laughs> man i'm guessing dave i yeah i am absolutely yeah. well uh, you're wrong God. obviously <laughs> <laughs> well actually my 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 uh my Vulcan Andorian character is kind of a Kirk-esque fellow. So, yeah, I mean, maybe you know me too well. <laughs> it's too easy. And so which would you, if, if, if one of us was going to run a campaign or even a one-shot just to test it out, would you be wanting to be in 
uh, original series or next gen land um i could do either but probably original series i think would would just would just tip it for me i think you know i i love next gen but there was an occasion where i'm going to digress a little bit here back at university we used to get around my little black and white telly and watch next gen yeah. uh, in my room i remember doing that at university too but we had it in color. and there was <laughs> and there was one episode there was one episode where it was all, it was it was almost a non episode and they were on just on the federation side of the the neutral zone with the romulans and i can't remember what happened except for right at the end a couple of romulan ships decloaked inside a federation space mm. and that's an act that's an act of war and picard sort of went ooh naughty boys off you go and don't do don't do it again and i thought hang on he should be shooting them come on this is just ridiculous and it was all a bit all a bit kind of over liberal and the oh, let's hug the bad guys and i know that's an enormous generalization because i still enjoy watching next gen but that kind of put me off it a little bit at the time ah, you see clearly that impression has lasted it's a fundamental issue and i think that particular episode and i'm going to sound too much like a trekkie here um <laughs> but i think that might have been during the writer's strike so there were all sorts of weird hints of 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 episodes that never actually then turned into anything and there was right. a placement content film, so that was that was a dodgy time for Star Trek and pretty much all television at the time. Um, you are such a Trekkie. That's just. <laughs> but oh I have to say, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. Is I'm not just a next gen man. I am a original. Sorry, first series Star Trek: The Next Generation one. I loved the bridge of that first series of the Enterprise when. Effectively, the uh, helm and con were on sofas. They were they were they were all on beach chairs, uh, and it was all rich carpet, and it was all so liberal. I, I, you know, I I thought this is uh, Gene Roddenberry's vision for the future actually come to pass. There were men in miniskirts in that first series that you never saw in any other episodes. It was so right, far okay. ahead of its time. And right. when Moving I run swiftly on the then. ship, that is when you'll be. You will be in a miniskirt, Dave. Walking around I'm going to be a transgender cross-dressing Vulcan Andorian. Now that doesn't sound fucked up, does it? <laughs> but we <laughs> anyway. ought to we ought to move on. Uh, I'm not yes. worrying about time, but uh, but this isn't the Star Trek RPG podcast. This is about Coriolis, and actually, I've got quite a good link because, in a way, the ship. Uh, so we've been talking about Gen Con. Our version of Gen Con is. Well, it isn't quite anything like Gen Con, but we have Dragon Meat coming up in November. And Dave, you and I are both hoping to run games of Coriolis at Dragon Meat. We I certainly are. I have in my head a scenario, which I think has been slightly spoiled by the big campaign coming out of Modifius but, uh, and, and Free League. But never mind that. I'm, I'm changing it a bit. And I wanted to have a bigger ship. You know, the sort of sense that there weren't just the five PC characters on this ship. So I've been looking at a at a class four ship and designing that. That sounds great, Matt. Let's let's listen to that. In December, Dragon Meat, the London RPG and tabletop gaming convention sponsored by Modifius, returns. It's no Gen Con, just one day in a reasonably large hotel, but it is my local convention, and I have permission for my wife to go this year. It always falls on the same weekend as her birthday. I like to run a game if I can, and this year, obviously, I want to run Coriolis. I have the seed of an idea for a scenario, 
but I want to take a slightly different tack this year. Often, convention scenarios can be forgiven for running a little on the rails. The players need to have a satisfying experience in a set three or four hours because they have other things to check out, other games to play. But I want this scenario to have the option of going off the rails a bit. Maybe give the players an opportunity to turn it PC versus PC even. To that end, I want to give the players a reasonably large ship to play on. That way, if they don't ever manage to get off it, there are still places to explore, discoveries to be made. My scenario also draws on an idea that I had some years ago, but never realised for the Firefly RPG. In that game, players are often assumed to be naughty folk running about on the raggedy edge. But I had an idea about running a police procedural, with players being underfunded federal cops solving crimes on the rim. The Third Horizon isn't quite as binary, but I've returned to that idea to think about making half the players Zenithian Judicators or Special Branch, and the other half first-come nomads, crewing at least a space-going station house in the further reaches of the Horizon. So I want a large ship, even though I'm likely to have only five or maybe six player characters. I want it to be Class 4. I want it to be old, worn out, cobbled together. There's an interesting passage in the core book's atlas on page 313 about the shipyards of Yastapol. Ships made there are, to quote, robust and ugly, apparently. However, in the chapter on ship construction, there's no mention of the Yastapol yards and no mention either of the penalties and bonuses such a ship might have in-game. But I want my ugly ship to have come from those yards, so for now I'll take the standard Class 4 stats and, if I have time before December, maybe come up with some game mechanics for ugly, robust ships. I get 20 modules on a Class 4 ship, excluding the three compulsory modules. So I have selected a stasis hold with 64 stasis beds, which is standard for a ship this size. However, on my deck plans, I'll divide this into a number of separate units. Six for the bridge crew, 14 more for other crew or passengers, and 50 in the brig. Stasis, after all, has got to be the best, most secure and cheapest way to transport prisoners. The crew, of course, get to move around more. One unit of 16 cabins and another unit of four suites for the senior officers. I added another suite module, converted into an office, holding cell and interrogation suite for potential police procedural scenes. Just in case my players want to get all CSI Third Horizon on the story, there are two med labs. One upgraded to a trauma lab, with the first of the three features the rules say I can add to the vessel, and the second converted to a pathology lab. When I design ships, I have never been a fan of systems that involve calculating tonnage and working out what components I can fit in a given volume. Instead, I design ships much in the way that I like to imagine TV set designers design spaceships. I like to think of the various components as spaces for each main character to be in, a reflection of the personality of that character. I think the modular shipbuilding rules of Coriolis lend themselves very well to this approach, by the way. So far then, 
I've identified spaces for our adjudicator and our pathologist stroke medical officer type. What spaces can I create for my first come crew? Well, I want this Yastapol ship to be relatively self-sufficient. Robust, as it said in the book. So the engineer needs not just a workshop, but a service station too. And I have in my head a very green chapel, which will require a combination of chapel module and the arboretum feature. So that's two of my three features decided. On to more practical matters. This is not a vessel of war, but it has a responsibility to protect the lives of its crew and up to 50 prisoners. So I'm going to get four escape pod modules. These as well as a hangar and one class two or maybe two class one vessels. Patrol cars, if you will. I do have space for weapons, but this is about defence rather than aggression. And when it does go on the attack, it will be to disable, not destroy another ship. I spent some time thinking about this as I perused the weapons tables. Finally, I decided upon a countermeasures module, a torpedo stroke mine module equipped with eight mines, a data meme and an iron cannon. That, plus things like a docking station and a cargo hold, come to two and a half million, 31,500 burr. Which seems like a bargain, though to be honest I don't care how much this costs because that's not going to feature in my one shot. I'm not done yet though. As I develop the characters, I may return to the ship and tweak it to better reflect the personalities and narrative possibilities of the crew. For example, the ship design and the data meme weapon suggests a data spider. But is he or she a first come or zenithian? An actual data spider or a fugitive? I'm thinking the latter right now, but when I know the characters better, I'll review the ship. One final point. I'm going to call this ship the Travelling Daughter. This harks back to the Serenity and Firefly RPGs and a search for a soundtrack to those adventures. I discovered an artist, an American banjo player who sings in Mandarin and who shares a surname with two of the crew of Serenity. Here's a few bars of the song that lends its title to my ship. Abigail Washburn and The Song of the Travelling Daughter. Thanks, Matt. That's uh, that's really interesting and plays into something that I've been thinking about quite a lot without having done very much about it, which is how do you cope with bigger ships that have a lot of crew? And you might want more of them to be doing things that you know your, your bridge positions would limit you from doing. So how would you go about creating, in sort of ship design terms, how would you go about creating more bridge positions? And I've thought about it a bit, and some of the ships that I've created for my campaign 
I just added them in. I didn't think about a mechanic for how that design would work. I just put them in because I can, because I'm GM. Yeah. I'm in charge. But I was thinking a bit about it, and I thought there's pro- probably two ways that you might be able to do it. You could either buy extra crew positions as a feature of the ship or as a module. And thinking about that, I think as a feature, I mean, the features are very expensive. Even at, even at say, 5% of the cost of the ship, which would be the cheapest feature there is, and some of them, I think the cheapest in the book is 10%, and the most expensive is 30% of the value of the ship. So even at 5%, if we're looking, say, take, take Mukafar as an example, that would still be 100,000 burr. 10%, that would be 200,000 burr. So that's an awful lot of money. Mm. And I was wondering whether, actually, is it really a feature thing? Or should it be a module? Because you could probably buy a new bridge for significantly less than that. And that would give you five crew slots again. So how would that work then as as a module, perhaps? So you could buy maybe a full second bridge. A bigger ship would probably want a second bridge anyway, in case the first bridge was, was knocked out of commission. At what cost? So I was thinking... The most expensive module in the book is 75,000, which I think is something around that salvage module. The cheapest is 10,000, I think. So somewhere in the middle, maybe something around 50,000, maybe might be reasonable. Mm. Or if you want, or the other thing I was thinking would be if you just wanted to buy extra crew positions on the bridge that you've got. So let's say we wanted to buy more positions and install them on Mukfar, which is only a class three ship, but we might want the second gunner or a second engineer, perhaps that would then come at that same cost, 50,000, but it would only allow you to have three crew positions rather than five, say, because you've got to implement that and deliver that inside the bridge you've already got, rather than adding a new module. Obviously, if you're going to add a new module, there's got to be module spaces on the ship to take it as well. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the the, the, the the way I was thinking about it. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I'm probably favouring the module approach rather than the feature approach. But what 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 have you thought about well, it? Well, so you know, this is a class four ship that I've designed. You get twenty yeah. modules, and in fact, I realised in thinking about it, and I was thinking about this um, as I say, as I said in the article, from two directions. Mm. One is simply because there's a story that I want to tell, and it's a police procedural. So I wanted to create a sort of police ship. Uh, but the other one was the other direction is that I I want to base it around the characters. Now I'm starting with the ship. I haven't started with with the player characters that I'm creating, but I've got in my head that because it's a convention game, I'll want six player characters to make sure that you know we can get a lot of people around the table, uh, yeah. and that already is one extra compared to really how uh, the game thinks uh, the game's going to be played. But it became apparent uh, that there are modules that do potentially require extra crew. And and that was evident in, in when I added the data meme, which is an offensive electronic weapon, effectively, that requires not a gunnery role, but a, a data spider role. And it made me realise that there could actually be two data spiders. You know, there could be a sensor ops guy. And there could be this person sitting in this module. And the module might not even be on the bridge. It might be somewhere else. But, you know, there's somebody who's doing that job. And, you know, if you if you read the rules about that module, it 
does require it's an attacking role but it isn't a gunnery role it's a data spider role so it does give you I, I think the opportunity to have more people on board and in fact actually you know you can you look at a lot of those weapon systems you can almost say we require a gunner for each of those weapon systems but if you've got a gunner for each of those weapon systems then obviously you can be doing all those things at the same time whereas a single gunner has to choose one of those things to do Obviously, you're going to need enough um, energy points to spend on all of this. But assuming you've got enough, then you know, a lot of gunners could be doing a lot of actions with no dice rolling penalty. Yeah, I think it's. I'm looking at the list on, in the book on page 149 for the uh, the summary for the weapons descri- descriptions, and it's it, yeah, it, it comes back to that discussion we had about crew members doing more than one job. So if you've got your your sensor operator with the data gen skill running the sensors, and then suddenly he's got to fire off a data meme attack, then surely he would then suffer minus two dice for both of those exactly. actions. Exactly, yeah. Whereas, you know, if... I mean, one thing would be, if you had plenty of gunnery positions on your ship, you could, in theory, have torpedoes for each of those gunnery positions, and then you can fire them at will, with impunity, without needing any energy, because they don't need any energy to fire. Mm. They do need a target lock, but they don't need any energy. But then that still comes back to needing a lot of gunners and a lot of gunnery positions. It does raise... I just thought, off the top of my head here, could you have two gunnery positions being run by one gunner? So actually, your gunner could get minus two on each action, but then fire twice? Yeah. Mm. I think. I think that's how the rules would work. Yeah. I quite like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you've got a really talented gunner. Yes. Actually, did, you know, losing a couple of dice wouldn't really harm, you know, harm the effect, the, the chances so much. He could be firing a missile every turn and doing some countermeasures or, you know, firing another offensive weapon. Yeah. Now, on the features, the feature side, so you were talking about the cost of features. Um, yeah. And remind me, do you have to, when you get three features, do you not, when you're, designing your ship at the start yes do they add to the cost or is it only extra features yes no no the the overall cost of the ship is is increased by by, by the features the, you choose the percentage value of the feature yeah yeah um so so you're right then i i think your conclusions are right if you you know if you're planning to have a ship with a lot of crew i mean i don't want to have any more than six players around my table but you may well have a table of eight people you know there's plenty of games out there where there might be eight i've played one game where i had 11 players um and if you wanted to make sure that all those 11 players had something to do on a ship then i think you're right it's modules are the way to go rather than features yeah i think it's also important which i found out in my campaign you you really need to identify where each of the crew positions is on your ship and which module they actually sit in, uh, because the 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 rules say that I think is it just pilot and centre operator are on the gunner bridge. maybe or, or on the bridge yeah or captain as well I guess in my campaign I have the engineer position in engineering so that would have to be in one of the one of the modules there so I think it's really important to know who is where on the ship for particularly when a, a module gets hit. And and they you know the people within that module are then are they are, you know are in some trouble. So remind me, this actually is an interesting thing that I that I didn't mention in the article, but I I I think I need to refer to. When a module gets hit on on a relatively small ship where there aren't all that many modules, 
how how well on any size ship how do you select which module gets hit when a ship takes a critical hit you roll on the critical ship damage table on page 172 and that will tell you what gets destroyed so there there are specific entries there and you roll a 9 and your graviton projector gets hit you roll a 10 and the bridge is destroyed but if you roll a 7 one of the other modules is destroyed and then i would just roll randomly on the list of modules depending on how many there are. Yeah, there's an interesting one. So, one you know, uh, I can't work out my calculation here, but I've got uh, effectively 20 modules that I need to roll randomly. Let's say a couple of those are actually also in the list. I, I haven't checked that table. So I'm rolling, what, uh, 3d6 or something to define which module gets hit? So basically, the only, the only, the only modules that are actually on the, the, the damage table... Uh, are, uh, well, you've got seven, which is destroy a module, eight, which is disable a weapon system, which, again, in itself might be a module, so you might need to take those off your list of modules if you've put it all together. Nine, graviton projector, ten, bridge. So that's that's the way it divides up on that table. We did talk last time about doing a more nuanced version of this table Mm. to reduce the chances of... Really bad criticals happening so often as they have in in your game. Exactly. So you could easily expand this table out to make that a lot more nuanced about which modules are likely to be hit or not. Some modules will be big, bigger than others. So like the cargo deck is going to be huge. Why should there be the same chance of that being hit as a tiny little ECM uh, dispensing? Exactly. Precisely tube? what I was thinking. So, you know, your, your ECM unit, you may have some great big antenna on the outside, but the, the guy inside... I mean, it might be in a relatively small target area. Meanwhile, as you say, cargo holds normally take up a great big chunk of space in a ship, but are relatively easy to secure. I imagine they're the sort of, you know, their bulkheads are probably already sealed when the ship goes into combat. If I get the opportunity to add a new feature to Mugafar, I'm going to add the ED fields, which mm. is... Uh, it's like the force fields in Star Trek, where if you blow out the side of the ship, a force field comes down and stops the decompression. Yeah, I like that. No, that's a that's that's a good thing. But I'm thinking, in a way, just carrying on our conversation from last time about you know how maybe we need to expand the critical ship table or critical hit critical the critical ship damage table. I always yeah. wonder whether each different designer ship might have a bespoke table created. I'm, I'm thinking maybe I will create for for the Travelling Daughter a bespoke table. For a start, you know, there's a thing that I didn't make clear. That's a really good idea, actually. I like that. In, in my floor plans that I'm cobbling together or beginning to cobble together for this, although I've got a module of stasis beds... I was thinking, you know, it's a bit ridiculous that they'd all be in one place because this is a police ship. Uh, fifty Up to 50 of the stasis beds are also effectively your cells for prisoners. You know, you obviously you'd put them in stasis. You wouldn't have them wandering around the ship causing problems unless you were wanting no. to interview them. And I thought, you know, the bridge crew, the last thing they want to do is walk to the other end of the ship having set the course to, to hit the portal to get into their stasis modules. Their stasis modules are going to be somewhere near the bridge. So I've already yeah. distributed that one module of stasis beds, because you get 64 in a Class 4 ship, uh, around around that ship. So immediately then there are potentially three different 
stasis modules that could get hit with more chance of the one full of prisoners getting hit because that's the bigger one. Yeah, I mean, that's funny, isn't it? If, if you've just gone into stasis and you are 10 minutes from hitting the portal and then some ship comes in and does a critical hit on your stasis pod, <laughs> you're just all dead, aren't you? Yeah, everybody, everybody's going to be dead there. But I'm just thinking, in ter- you know, that's just an example of how I've taken a module and distributed it around the ship. So there isn't just yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. There's the same volume, if you like, but in three, in at least three different places. And so it might be worth thinking about that in a nuanced critical hit table. Yeah, I think having a bespoke critical hit table for the travelling daughter would allow you to reflect that, whereas a standard table doesn't. And I tell you, I, I really like that bespoke critical hit table for each ship. Mm. Uh, and I think I will make one up for... Um, Mukafar. Uh, for, spect- for Spectral Corsair and Mukafar, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Hey, we've got a thing, and we can share those. I know. We've done them, maybe. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the stuff that I talk about here, I'm going to stick on my uh, on RPGGods.org. So it's all there. All be there for people to look at and, and use if they want it. Brilliant. Marvellous. So we ought to move on to uh, something else that might help people when they get hit. <laughs> and that is your... Excellent, I think, talent of the episode. I've been enjoying the development of my character in Matthew's campaign, and being part of the evolution of Yafet Otho over a few game sessions, emails and chats on our programmes has been a real pleasure. He started out as a Parker lookalike from the film Alien, and has grown into a shipwright and engineer who loves tinkering with ships and equipment, a Zalosian slave who spent most of his life learning his trade in the dockyards of Karmaruk. It was during the bottle scenario that Matthew ran, the one we recorded and are now putting out as actual play programmes, that the idea behind this talent came to mind. More than once, I've heard myself speaking in Yafet's voice, saying, I designed this ship, and I know this ship better than anyone. Yafet has literally put his blood, sweat, love and soul into Mukafar, and it's fair to say the two of them in their own ways, have grown up together. So when Yafet tried to find a way through Mukafar's maintenance tubes and ventilation ducts, back to the stasis hold, avoiding the beasts that were stalking us, and Matt gave me a plus one dice bonus for Yafet's deep knowledge of the ship, the idea really took hold. Most engineers and captains, as well as other crew members, would have an affinity or love for their ship. After all, she is home. She is their work. They all rely on her to keep them safe from the vacuum of space and the dark between the stars. But for some it's different. The bond is even deeper. So I thought, how can I reflect this in a talent? I had a look in the book, but there was no help inside its glossy pages. There are no talents that reflect this kind of thing. I thought about the possibility of a character choosing their ship as an alternative PC buddy but the PC buddy dynamic doesn't offer any mechanical game advantage, so it wouldn't fit the bill I was looking for. And besides, as far as I'm concerned, my players are entirely free to treat their ship with more love and consideration than their fellow characters, should they want to. I can see the ship as a PC buddy working especially well if the ship has an artificial intelligence that the GM can play, or as in the Spectral Corsair campaign, if the ship is haunted by a poltergeist-type spirit that might interact in some way with the crew. But I digress. With these avenues shut off, I took to thinking about the way the character and the ship could interact, or whether the PC gains some extra impetus from their love of the ship. 
I mean, people do manage epic things in defence or support of the ones they love. And I came up with this, our talent of the episode. General Talent This is my ship. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My ship is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. My ship without me is useless. Without my ship, I am useless. For one chosen ship, and only one, ever, you get a bonus of plus one to your dice when on board and rolling any skill that directly involves the ship or for which the ship is the direct beneficiary. This bonus does not apply to actions on board that are not directly related to the ship. The GM decides what can and cannot be included under this talent. For example, you will get plus one for a technology or data gin roll when attempting a task that is relevant to the ship, like a repair, sensor ops or servicing role, or operating airlocks or other onboard systems. You will get a plus one for a pilot role when piloting the ship, including portal jumps, and plus one for ranged combat when using the ship's weapon systems. You will get plus one for command roles that relate to space combat initiative and commands. And you will get plus one on force roles when resisting explosive decompression. But you will not get the bonus when using technology on board the ship for something that does not relate to the ship, such as repairing someone's rifle, for example. You will not get the bonus for hitting or shooting an enemy on board unless the GM agrees that enemy is directly threatening the ship herself. You will not get the bonus on data gin if you are remotely hacking something but you just happen to be on board the ship. And you will not get the bonus when using medikurgi, even when using the ship's medbay, as the ship is not the direct beneficiary of the role. Cost? Five experience points. I really like that. You know, it's a relatively modest bonus. I love the fact that you can only ever have this talent for one ship in your entire life. Can yeah. I also ask, though, how many crew on a single ship could choose this talent? That's a really good question. For me, I think it feels like this is a personal relationship between the ship and the character. And there probably needs to be something slightly special in the narrative to justify taking the talent. So for Yafet, uh, as I said in the piece... You know, he he grew up with that ship. They are you know, linked in so many ways that makes sense narratively. You could say Mal Reynolds in Firefly would have a similar well, connection you know, that, to his that's ship. That's precisely the example I was thinking of there because I think Kaylee would have that. Mm. You know, yep. she she loves that ship more yeah, physically yeah. than 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 Mal does. Mal obviously loves his ship. That that's made clear. So do they both have this is my ship? I think they could mm. if they wanted to. I think you would in, in in that environment you probably wouldn't Wash would need to come up with a good narrative reason why he would choose that talent. It seems a bit less likely and then even less likely for uh, Simon or River or Zoe. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're right. In in my feeling none of the other crew maybe river post post the movie um but none of the other uh, yes. would, would yeah. ever get that talent the question in my mind is do mal 
and Kaylee get it? And do they get it at the same time? Or is it something that Kaylee has to earn or has earned in previous episodes that we never saw in, in the actual television show? If that was a Coriolis game, uh, I, I would think that Mal probably had that from the minute he looked up and saw Serenity in that episode. Is that in Out, out of Gas, gas episode? Yeah. yeah. And you just see the look of love on his face. I think that's the point where he gets that talent if he wants to take it, if the player wants to take it for his character. I think Kaylee. Uh, again, there's the uh, which bit is it? It's either the the bit where they do the crazy Ivan, or somewhere in Serenity the movie where she's sitting there and she. It's the crazy Ivan, isn't it? I think where she goes, "That's my girl." That's, That's my, my girl. girl. And, yeah, yeah. And, and rubs the, rubs the bulkhead, and that would be the point where she would then narratively be able to say, "Yeah, okay, I want that talent. I'm going to spend some XP on on taking it." Yeah. <sighs> One of the things that I really liked about the talent was thinking around, um, you know, you only get the bonus if you are actually doing something that is directly relevant to the ship. Yeah, a lot really of that, like that is, a lot of that is really obvious. It's like I'm flying the ship or I'm shooting the guns or something like that. But I think also there's a feel of the ship is protecting you a little bit. So that's why I gave you uh, the plus one bonus on force rolls when resisting explosive decompression which isn't necessarily directly relevant to the ship but for me it reflects the idea that the ship is trying to save you you've got that relationship with the ship so you get that bonus because the ship is trying to save you in that horrible moment but also uh, i added in you get the bonus if somebody is directly threatening the ship so my idea thinking there is that someone's got a bomb on the ship that they're about to set off to destroy the ship or destroy you on the ship but actually, because it's threatening the ship, you get that bonus, you get that extra, I'm not going to let you do this because you're destroying my ship kind of thing. And I really like that idea. But that goes slightly beyond the wording of the actual talent, which is you know, only when it's directly related to the ship. So I think those things are directly related, but in a slightly different way. But mm. I, I, lo- I love that element of it. Yeah, and it's good. You, know, you said that's a sort of GM's cool thing, and you gave a load of examples, which I liked. I like, as I said, I, I like the fact it's a relatively modest bonus, but that it is quite wide ranging. So for me, that works really well. Uh, I would be a little nervous of a whole bunch of players going, oh, I want that too. I want that too. Um, and I think, you, you know, you are going to have to be tough on, yeah, well, what's your special connection really with this? Are you Kaylee? Are you Mal? Because you're definitely not having it if you're Jane, no matter how much. He wields the chain of command. <laughs> yes. Or who he beats with it. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I like that. I think maybe when I stick this up on my blog site, I will change that. Or I'll add that element to it because putting the, you know, the idea in that it's only one ship touches on what you're talking about there, but doesn't go quite as far as you have done. And I think I will add that in. That's really good. Cool. We've changed the running order a bit, uh, but I was just so keen to talk about that excellent talent of the talent of the episode that we've changed the running order. But we did want to have some time to talk about portal space uh, for two reasons. One being that we very much enjoyed the episode that is currently being broadcast, the, um, the, the third and final part of which will be shortly after this episode goes out. But also yep. because in that episode, I made a dreadful, dreadful mistake. Now, uh, this brings me to the discussion of who is the best GM. Because in that episode, you said, ah, if you're the such a good GM, Dave, how, how long does it take to go through portal space? To which I answered, it's instantaneous. 
And and what's what are the, what do the rules say, Matt? Um, well, as it turns out, it's instantaneous. Funny um, that. But that's no fun <laughs> at all. <laughs> is it? I mean, we, you know, it's not. No, if, that would have been the shortest adventure ever, and it would have totally spoiled my thing. And at the end of the day, weird shit happens in portal space. We know this because people who are awake in portal space, you know, come out. Well, even you guys who survived any physical defects, you have come out different from your experience. So, well, I think if we look if we look at the rules, there's there's two things I'd just say to that. So the book says the book's actually quite clear on the you know the jump being uh, being instantaneous because it says the jump itself is instantaneous yeah. on page 138, and uh, when a ship passes through a portal, it is instantly transported to the next on page 300. Yeah, okay. But then yeah, moving on to <laughs> 4015. Uh, moving on to the impact, it's you know, it says no human can travel through a portal field while awake. That's quite clear. It says the crew must be put in stasis or they will suffer terrible mental and physical trauma called bad stasis, hypersickness or frostbite if they are unlucky enough to survive. And then again, it goes on to say without stasis, portal jumps are basically suicide. So it's quite clear. Yeah, yeah. You don't portal jumps are bad things. But does the does the table actually reflect that? Because you can you can roll on. This is what happens if you go through portal space, and I'm not convinced that that table does the job, does it? Well, it's not even really a table. So what it says, if you look at hypersickness on page three three seven, which is what you get if you go through stasis without um, go through portals without being in stasis, mm. it says the sick. And this is it. This is all it says because I had a good look. The sickness comes in many forms, from madness to having one's mind or limbs twisted by the darkness. A person th- travelling through a portal field without stasis rolls 1d6, a result of one or two indicating he has been affected by hypersickness. A one in three chance of having something bad happen doesn't stack up with going through a portal being basically suicide if you're not in stasis. So that doesn't work for me. I like the basic suicide end of the spectrum. And that was where my thinking was in coming up with the... Uh, the rules I've done I've done for somebody being awake in, in portal space. But I think the first thing I wanted to say, despite us having done it in our bottle episode and it actually working such a great episode, such a great scenario, for me, I'm going to make a house ruling that I'm not going to run or allow the players to roleplay being in portal space. Because I think it can work as a one-off, maybe. But if you let players routinely roleplay portal space... It's mysticism and mystery is going to be lost. And I think that's going to be a really bad thing for the feel of the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pleased to say that uh, I don't play with dicks. And I'm sure, you, I'm sure you and Tony aren't going to go, oh, well, we don't need to worry about portal space. All we need to do is arm ourselves to the teeth against those terrible hounds and uh, we, we can go through a wake. Um, yeah. Because familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. And so if you did do that... I would have your your next experience in portal space would be radically different and even more freaky and I don't think any of what I described would necessarily happen the second time so you know this time due to my um misreading in hurriedly uh, <laughs> you know it it took you 24 hours you know next time it might take you a year or a minute <laughs> uh, but the most horrendous minute that you've ever had and it would, you know, it wouldn't necessarily feature ships. You wouldn't even necessarily know you're on a ship. I would, I would screw with you if you took the familiar. Cho- chose to do it again. Yeah. Uh, chose to do it again. Yeah. 
Well, I think I mean for me the the I you know the rules are clear that it's you know going through a portal doesn't take twenty four hours. But I say pooted that with knobs on because I love the idea of there being a bit of elapsed time. Um, I also like your idea there, Matt, of perhaps the experience is totally different every single time. Mm. And I didn't have that thought in mind when I created the rules that I'll talk through in a moment. But that I think that's a really good option. You could do something really really screwy and fruity um, and very weird. Yeah. Um, but I did even even you know on that point about the mystery of of portal space. I even had a moment's hesitation in the middle of thinking about these rules for that very same reason. You know, does the fact, you know, the simple fact of making up the rules for portal space already demystify it and then have the effect I'm saying that we ought to try and avoid? So, I mean, obviously that hesitation didn't stop me, but you know, portal space, I think, is a really, really important part of Coriolis. And in your and my campaigns, as young and early in their lives as they are, we've already both had players in portal space. Mm. So I think there is so definitely a need That's what for rolling. <laughs> no, well, in my game, they, they got out of portal space as quickly as they possibly could. They had none of this shilly-shallying around killing dark-bound dark half-dog, half-bird things like we did. But So let, let me talk a little bit about what I've come up with for my okay, idea I'm, of, I'm of what portal space hear. would be like. You've built it up so much now. I'm desperate to hear these rules. <laughs> So this is just my take on it. Obviously, people and you are entirely um, within your gift to... To, to ignore uh, to, them to, to or dis- to use them and steal them. Yeah, exactly. So I, so, I, so I was thinking, so what actually are the effects, sort of the narrative effects of portal space? And I think there are perhaps four things that are happening here based partly on my own thinking, but also partly on the bottle scenario that you ran. So I think, first off, being in portal space, you are experiencing some ancient parallel dimension that you really shouldn't be able to see. And my idea for this, my going in my mind, is images from an old 1986 HP Lovecraft-inspired movie that was called From Beyond, where the people in that movie were... I mean, it's a bit of a shit movie, actually, but um, their, their consciousness was raised, and that gave the protagonists a view of a parallel and hostile dimension that is always swirling around you, but you just can't see or feel. And in that, there is a multitude of strange little creatures that are flittering in and out of your your vision and your perception, and they're just tormenting you. So they're not; it's not like a constant attack, but it's just a constant, you know, death by a thousand wounds kind of thing. Secondly, there are evil spirits in the dark, and they are drawn to you. So the sarcophagi that are out there, and that you had trying to influence me and Tony in 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 your scenario, mm. they can see you, and they start to whisper the twisted thoughts. And they come and try and kill you. Uh, you know, they, they drive you mad and try and kill you. Thirdly, the dark bound and dark morph creatures. So the uh, the, the 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 dog. T- yeah, the the hounds of um to 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 the hounds of wherever that place is. I can't remember which planet. <laughs> on. Those yes, those hounds. They can sense the energy of your ship, and they then swarm to it. Once they uh, materialize on the ship, they can then sense you, and they then come and try and find you to eat you. And then finally, I think the swirling energies of portal space itself and its all enveloping darkness will have an effect on you. Yeah. So the way that I would apply those four things in the rules. The Hounds of Tyrides. <laughs> okay. I've Excellent. Just the Hounds of, the Hound of Tyrides. Yes. You knew it all along, didn't you, Matthew, really? <laughs> yeah. I did. Just yeah, a test. yeah. It was off the top of my head. <laughs> so, yeah. How do I see that working actually in terms of rules and mechanics? So I think these four aspects 
have an effect, and they will affect anybody awake in portal space once per hour, but they will affect them immediately on the beginning of that hour. So even 10 seconds in portal space will bring all these effects to your door at least once. And so under the parallel dimension idea, you can see this. So you can see all these little critters, uh, these, these creatures. You can't kill them. They can only be warded off. They have the swarm feature. So you can ward them off with fire, um, but they can't be killed by it. And the effects of these little creatures are represented by one 10 dice attack per hour, doing damage of two, a crit of three, and ignoring armor. And the GM can then apply that to either hit points or mind or points. Or points, nice. Yeah. Or possibly spread them between the two. So these are these are little things that are sort of nipping at you. And I, I, did, I did five rolls of this for Yafet, um, which I'll come to in a minute. And it was doing that that made me think, actually, maybe the first damage from this should be hit points, but then the next, any any crit damage, any any extra successes would then affect mind. Mind as well, gotcha. Um, so the second point, so the sarcophagi. So each hour, there's a one in three chance of a sarcophagi being attracted to those awake on board the ship. They're listed on page 335, and they will use their ability of sow discord. Yeah, yeah. You had one of those. I don't think you identified it, but there was one of those no. on, in the adventure. And every hour thereafter, there is a sa- the same chance of luring a new sarcophagi. So you mm. might get lots of them on board the ship, all vying to drive you mad first and kill you. But following my house ruling of don't roleplay portal space, the way I see this being uh, reflected would be that you reduce a character's mind points by 1d2 every hour for every sarcophagi that is on board the ship. Mm. So if you've got... F- two or four you then obviously there's a huge amount of mind damage that's going to happen on the third point uh the dark bound or the dark morphs or your hounds of tirides so every hour you get 1d3 minus one attracted to the ship and they will then come and they will sense the characters and they will then attack the characters again following my house ruling uh, i've ruled that you should do 1d2 hit points of damage per hour per dark morph to each character on board the ship. So again, that'll, that'll build up pretty quickly. And then finally, the effect of portal space itself. So in the, in the bottle episode, uh, you'll remember that I said a number of times, how do I feel? Yeah, how, you know, is this is just being here affecting me badly? And this point is, is for me that the, just the bad effect of being in that environment at all, mm. experiencing those dimensions. So once every hour, each character would make an empathy or mystic's powers roll to resist its effect. And the roll would be opposed, and the effect of portal space would be represented by 10 dice, and then it would be an opposed roll against the character's empathy or mystic powers roll to see what the impact of it is. And there'll be one mind point of damage done per difference in success. Or, actually, a bonus. So if you are lucky enough to roll more successes than the effect of the dimensions that the 10 dice has on you you then get a mind point back. You've suddenly gone, well, no, I can resist this. But overall, it will eventually get you, I think. So those are the four things that I've put in as affecting a character who is inside portal space. And having rolled it for Yafet five times, the outcome of those five, uh, five attempts were the first one, Yafet died in hour two, being broken by hit points, and then um, a crit killed him. In the second one, Yafet died in hour three, and in the last three, Yafet survived, but with varying degrees of badness having happened to him. So the way I've ruled it is that if you go to zero hit points or zero mind points, 
you then this is you being twisted by the darkness mm. so you won't take any more actual damage you're unconscious so to all intents and purposes this will be the effect that the portal space has had on you but you then roll on a effect t- table that i've put that i've put together which i won't read through it all but i'll, I'll stick it up on uh, rpggods.org when i post this post this blog but basically the damage there is quite bad so you'd roll 2d6 for a 2 to 12 number and that'll either give you rolls on the crit table or it will damage you permanently to either agility or strength if you were broken by hit points or wits and empathy if you were broken by mind points so all in all it's pretty bad yeah um, some of this might seem quite harsh but again remember that going through portal space awake is something again to quote the book that's basically suicide and if you come through it you actually would rather wish that you hadn't, almost. Mm. And then, just to top it all off, if that isn't bad enough, don't forget that portal jumps earn darkness points for the GM. In fact, portal jumps that are failed are even better earners. So if you're not in stasis for a portal jump, that's three darkness points for the GM. And suffering bad stasis or hypersickness, that earns the GM a darkness point as well. So those are the rules that I've put together for that. I say I've I've tested them a little bit. It's it it seems to work quite well, and it really should encourage players to Not avoid to portal space at every opportunity. Yeah, well, yeah, I I feel that you know that the that hypersickness are you right? Not table that hypersickness rule doesn't reflect what the text says, and those no. rules definitely seem to. So um, it'd be interesting. I I guess the only little caveat I'd put with it is um, what can, how are you imagining, uh, you know, Joe Bloggs, PC or a crew risk going in for whatever reason, they, they go into portal space, bad stuff starts happening in terms of dice rolls. What action can the player character take to try and minimize that bad stuff so there are, there are two things here you either you either role play the portal space so if the characters have made a conscious decision as part of their particular scenario to go into portal space they're doing something in yeah. there so you would role play it so you would have dark bound and dark morph turn up you would have sarcophagi turn up you would role play them yeah. uh, as you would anything else i see this being something that you would use uh, probably only on occasions where people are late getting into stasis so you'd only roll on it once potentially mm. but if circumstances were such that they uh, happened to be out of stasis for longer than that so if, if somebody said i'm going to punish somebody you know, like the trial of the icons say oh, i'm going to punish somebody by oh. going through stasis going through portal space and leaving them awake and out of stasis yeah um, then you might want to roll you might you want to roll, roll on this to see and, what happens and see what you yeah. end up with gotcha so that's how I'd see it played. But again, this hasn't been play tested other than me just rolling those effects a few times for Yafet just to see how it played out. And you know, I think your idea of having something totally different each time, it could almost be, I have visions of uh, flitting back to Star Trek, Star Trek Generations, when they went into the vortex or whatever oh, they called yes. it. Yeah. They ended up somewhere totally different. Wyoming. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> maybe being in portal space does that. You just end up totally different you're not on board ship you're not anywhere like that you're just in a totally different dimension mm. which is different every single time you go into it there are there are loads of options loads and loads of options yeah or you could end up in the upside down like in um, 
Stranger Things. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not going to let you get away with that, man. I'm really not. <laughs> we have got we have got a Simba Room game coming up in a few weeks, and your new character of Potboy might. Uh, yeah, yeah might, might I, I've got some... to say, I really like that character generation system. Yes, so do I. Uh, let's just let's just let's just move aside for a moment because it deserves a bit of praise. Um, <laughs> so uh, just to catch our listeners up, we were all together to play L five R. I had to leave early, and so the other the other players rolled up their Simbroom character for, for they your did. upcoming campaign. I had to do it on my own, and obviously I missed that. I I, I like to you know to do stuff that complements the other players' characters, but I really enjoyed the pure simplicity of that system. You know, here's a bunch of stats. Here are the numbers. Arrange them in whatever order you want. Uh, you know, it says you might, as you develop the character, actually want to swap a couple around. That's fine. You might want to take a point off one and add it onto the other. That's fine. But, you know, here's a little array of scores. Here are the stats you put them in. I love the stats because they're not kind of as obvious as strength and dex. They're more, you know, they're, they're, they're broader they're than that. Between yeah, that and skills. And then you select... And, your... and they also, they Sorry, also say on, as yeah. well that they also say that it's entirely up to you. You can change the name of the stats to better reflect how you think it works for your character if you want to. I'm mm. not proposing to do that because I think that might just get a bit complicated. But it, again, it's, it's the simplicity, the ability to craft it in the way that you want to craft it that was the second thing that drew me to Simbaroom. The first thing that drew me to it was its fabulous artwork. Mm. Uh, the second thing is is this system that is really quite quite simple yeah, I I'm really looking forward to playing it. Yeah, um, no, I, I I am too, and I loved my character. I really loved this new character in a way that I haven't loved a new character since probably since Bobby Rashid, to be that's, frank. That's uh, brilliant, and it fits really well. So just to summarise, I'd not had a really strong idea about where this campaign was going to go or what the campaign storyline was going to be. I had a setting and a feeling, and the feeling was it's all dark, it's all very dangerous. Everybody is afeard of the dark things that are out there. You don't go out at night because it's deadly dangerous. And then I had a setting, which is this brewery and the the inn that goes with it. And the characters being poor with with sort of nothing to their name almost, being allowed to live in the, the, the old barrel cellar. And it, it's created two characters, um, two changing in characters that Tony and Andy have got, which are both really really good sort of orphans who have been allowed to stay here. And then it's created Potboy, Matthew's ogre character. It's gone really well. Just there's a really simple, really simple feeling, really simple setting has resulted in three characters and a situation that I'm delighted to hear, Matt, that you know, you're know you loving this character so much uh, that, that I'm really excited about. And I'm thinking about the first couple of scenarios and they're going to be really, really simple and straightforward but still hopefully uh, a lot of fun to, to role play and build these characters in cool well if we run out of things to talk about about coriolis we might have to expand this podcast into um, swedish gaming or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh and so we can talk more about about simba room and western of course we, we've both signed up for that one as well uh, did you sign up for it in the end? Yeah, in the end, in the end. Okay, I thought you weren't going to. But, I oh, wasn't, good. Excellent. No, I got um, a little bit of money back from something. I can't remember what it was. So nice. I was feeling poor at the time. 
and uh, in the final hours, I um, I got um, I think just the basic rule book. I can't remember what what level I signed up at, but yeah, I went for it in the end. I really want to play, as you will have read on um, my RPG a day. I really want to play a western, and maybe we'll get a chance to do that. Anyway, yeah, um, I just get on, on that. Sorry. I just want I just wanted to make one comment. I, I read your 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 rant about aces and eight. Yeah, uh, I ju- I just feel the need in Jamie's defence slightly. Jamie was the the referee who was. was I wasn't going to name game. him, but the, you. Have <laughs> well, I don't mind. I don't mind. Him. Well, you know what he called me in his speech at my wedding, so I'm not going to use that word here. <laughs> but um, so he deserves it. But 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 yeah. So why am I defending him? Uh, you know, anyway, in his defence, uh, whilst he's not here, I think that was the first time he was ever running a game in his life. And didn't want to overburden himself with rules because he was with concentrating on concentrating on getting the the game mastering of the game right. Yeah. So in his defence, I think I think um, it's not much you know. of a defence given what he called you during his speech at the wedding. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no. I think that's a perfectly inadequate defence you've given him. And you know, if you if you if you're new to a game, then follow the rules. Don't start faffing about with it <laughs> until. You know, we've all maybe gone. Actually, that's not working for us as a table. But but anyway, let's let's not bore our listeners with that. Um, I don't want you ranting us, again, do we? Now <laughs> they'll give us really bad feedback <laughs> if we keep going off the subject. That's true. Uh, that's true. And we've got feedback coming up. But before that, you did you did want to say a little bit about what you've got instead of Spectral Corsair coming up? Yeah, this is going to be nice and brief um, because I'm just foreshadowing um, a game that I'm going to run in a couple of weeks with my crowd down the pub and it's it's a rerun in effect of a game that i ran as i said earlier about 30 years ago with matthew and a few of the other guys uh, andy was there and back in the day i i ran it on call of cthulhu rule system i'm going to run it this time on well a combination actually of coriolis and mutant year zero rules and it's a scenario based on the fabulous John Carpenter 1982 movie, The Thing, which is probably my favourite movie of all time. It's certainly my favourite horror stroke uh, sci-fi movie of all time. And back in the day, this was a bit of a risk I took with this game because what I did was I set up the the, the, the situation. I, I, I presented the location, the ice, the Antarctic ice base. I gave all the players a pre-generated character I told one of them secretly that they were the thing, the alien who had to try and survive and try and turn other players into into things as well. And then I just said to the guys, okay, what are you going to do? And that was 10 minutes of our afternoon's gaming. And at the time, it was a real risk. I, 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 I didn't know how it would play out, but it was probably one of the most memorable and enduring role-playing experiences I've ever had. It was absolutely brilliant and it worked so well thanks to the uh, imagination and the engagement of the players. Yeah. And it was brilliant. And I've wanted for a long time to try and recreate that with a slight caveat, which I know you you you, you endorse, Matt, that is, is it wise to go back and do something that was so great because it probably won't be as good again the next time. But after 30 years, I've decided I'm, I'm going to do it. Cool. So I'm setting this up. I'm setting this up for a couple of weeks. Uh, one evening down the pub, we'll have eight players. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Is Tony As I said, I am. Tony's going to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Andy? No, no, Andy. Unfortunately, 
So I don't think there'll be anybody there who played the original. So Tony wasn't in that original game? I don't think he was. I don't no, think I he was. I think he was at university I... at the time. And I think John Lerner yeah. was, wasn't he? John was, Mike yeah. was. So it's good. You know, I, I, uh, you had talked about doing this uh, a little while ago, or not necessarily in the, the same system. I'm really pleased you're doing it, but I wouldn't want to be part of that game. I've got those memories. It was great. I don't want to step in the same river twice. Um, no, that's fair enough. I, I'm slightly disappointed because it would it would have been a better game if you and Andy'd been there. <laughs> but so be it. I take uh, I, I take your point. And we've got eight players for the eight slots, so you're not welcome now, anyway. Yeah, cool. That's good. <laughs> so you'll be telling us about how that goes, and it would be really interesting to hear about how you adapted the Coriolis and mutant rules to fit that in a future episode. I basically bastardized the bits I like from both of them that fit quite well, with the intention of keeping this game as rules light as possible. Mm. It's all about role playing. It's all about the players getting in there and enjoying it and running it, running the game for me. And as you said, with uh, that experience of, of fate earlier, if I can sit back and just watch them running the game, then I'll have done my job and it will have worked really well. Brilliant. So I'll update on the next, on the next podcast. Cool. Um, we've got a little bit of feedback to talk about as well, haven't we, actually? Um, we do have a little bit, yes. Uh, so what do we got? We got, um, we got some really interesting feedback that I won't read out from uh, our correspondent, Ben. He gave us some um, lovely feedback on atheism. Maybe I should read a bit of it out, actually. There's some interesting questions yeah. he asked in the last paragraph. Well, um, I think I'd, I'd just like to apologise. I, I was going to feed back on this before, and I said to Ben, I think on Google Plus, that it was coming. As I said, the, the things in my in real life got in the way so i never got around to doing that but um yeah go on go on matthew let's let's talk about it now i'm just looking for it. i've lost it again he gave us some quite detailed feedback on my atheist talent idea but i think actually in a way the most interesting part is the questions he raises in the last paragraph um dave do you want to do you want to share those yeah seeing you can't get your it to work i'm quite happy to do that ben's ben's gave a very thorough uh, list of stuff but he ended up talking about questions such as, are the icons conscious and aware? Do they intervene with purpose or is it just completely random? Are they omnipotent deities or are they just saints or angelic beings with limited gifts? Are answered prayers and icon talents really the effect of other, less salubrious powers? Is there an intelligence behind any of it or is it all truly random? And what does it have to do with the darkness between the stars? These are really interesting questions and are ones that, that I guess every GM will, will have, a, have a feeling for. Now, I hadn't really thought about it in any great detail. I should perhaps have done. I think for me, I've always thought of the icons a bit like the Norse gods or the Greek gods. So they are, they're not sort of omnipotent in the sense of uh, you know, the Christian god or, or the Muslim god would be. They're not the monotheistic thing, but they're much more like super powerful human beings, almost as sort of the Greek gods were uh, were seen as by by the Greeks or, or or the Norse gods. And they are they are cheeky, they are having fun with people almost. So I think I find my answer lies somewhere between between the two of what, of what Ben's talking about there. Mm. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, I think every GM can ask himself those questions. And whatever they reply would work and would add a unique flavour to every table. So, And would probably be different from every other GM's interpretation of it as well. Yeah. 
So I think it's almost infinite number of of ways you could consider it, ways you could play it. So thank you, Ben, for for that feedback. I did just to finish the atheist talent thing. I did sit down and just very quickly before we talked, rolled the dice as as we discussed under the talent for Yaffet if he were an atheist, and I think it works out okay actually. Looking at it from the original talent suggestion where if you fail a roll you then fail the first time you try that skill that ability i ended up out of his six skills failing on two of them having one of them with two successes and three with one success i think that feels again a little bit harsh because you fail on two only one of them is a full success actually the three skills where i rolled a one would i in the midst of a game want to say I'll have one success there. That's okay. Or would I actually want to roll the dice? So, for example, I got a one, one success on technology roll. Now, Yafet gets nine dice if he has his toolkit with him. So would I actually want to use that one or would I want to roll the dice in that given situation? I'd probably want to roll the dice. So thinking about if that were to make a pool of successes that I could then play as an atheist throughout the scenario, that would give you a pool of five which actually feels quite good. You could go for a really big success with a three or even a four if you wanted something really outrageous, or you could go for more, you know, lesser successes. So I think that works quite, I think it works well having had a little, a very little playtest of it. Yeah, we need to do a proper playtest though. We need to find somebody who actually wants to be an atheist and, and give it a go. So if, if somebody out there's doing that, please let us know how it works. Yeah, I did try and encourage somebody on... Um on G plus who was talking about it to, to give it a go. And that one of their players wanted to do something like that. So we'll see if they feedback. I can't remember who that was now. Oh, talking of G plus actually there's, there was another nice comment that's related to Ben, isn't there? Well, I'd like, I'd like to say, well, clearly Ben has been spreading the word and thank you very much for that, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, we had a really nice comment from uh, Chris O'Reilly saying he just spent two weeks on holiday by a pool listening to, uh, or, as he says, pretty much devouring episodes of the podcast. And that's brilliant. I'm so delighted that you're enjoying it. You know, I think this kind of thing is the ideal thing to take on holiday. And if, if any of our listeners wants to take Matthew and me on holiday with them, um, we're happy to do a live uh, a live podcast yeah. for them. Go ahead. If you're going to pay for, pay for us, we'll do, it. Take us on holiday we'll do it by the beach. And uh, we, we'll do it live for you. Yeah. We'll, we'll sit in the pool in our swimming trunks and, and do the whole thing uh, fresh and live. Uh, that's our offer to any of our fans. If that doesn't sound a bit creepy, that is, of course. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, and I've got a nice, uh, I, I've got a bit of feedback I really want to read out from Reddit as well. This was feedback to the second part of our actual play, which was our last episode, although he's talking about episode five in particular. And I'm going to read it out word for word. It comes from Ruin Zealot from Reddit, and it says, I've been really enjoying these. For the self-proclaimed amateurs, they have excellent pacing and balanced content with personality and humour. They take chances with prototyping, but I haven't really had a WTF, what are these guys smoking moment, except (laughs) maybe during episode five, I believe it was, when someone came from Zalos B. Ear-shattering yelling, Burn him! Burn the heretic! (laughs) At which point I had to cancel my morning commute to shower again and retrieve fresh pants, uh, <laughs> which is exactly the effect I was uh, aiming for. So thank you, Ruin Zeller, for making my dreams come true. 
uh, I'm, I'm sure. Um, let, let's not think about that. That your dreams are all around ruined zealots' pants. <laughs> no, that's, okay, that's not a great thing. <laughs> Don't go um, on. That but I think it's. But I mean, when Matt told me that, um, I'm just so pleased because we've we've done a number of these now. But I kind of forget that I've never done a podcast before the first one of these. And I'm still a complete amateur to it. And to get that kind of feedback is just absolutely humbling and fantastic. So thank, thanks very much indeed. Keep listening because we love doing it. And we will get better, possibly. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. Um, so that brings us to the end of this podcast. I think it's going to come in comfortably over an hour and a half. Have you got any last messages, Dave? <laughs> you make it sound like I'm going. I'm going away somewhere. Uh, or last. No. Um, no. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks, Matthew, again for all your excellent inputs and particularly all the nice things you said about me. This podcast, which is probably the first time in a decade, at least, it's so first and the up. last time I ever say anything <laughs> nice about you, David. That's fair enough, David. Only my dad calls me David. <laughs> I'm going formal now. And I, I, I have just got actually one other thing I need to say quickly before the programme ends. And that is, Dave, you really ought to watch Stranger Things. <laughs> okay, right. On that note, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. And may and the may icons the bless icons... your... Ch- Which of us is actually saying that this time? Or did we want to both say it? Okay, shall we do it together then? <laughs> yeah. One, two, three, and, and may, may the, the icons, icons bless your, your adventures. adventures. We'll see how that turns out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric.